Hi everyone, welcome to Wild Shit with Kai. I'm your host, Kai. If you're new here, this podcast is essentially me retelling stories about true crime cases, super weird history facts, and bizarre world events. Through my research, hopefully the topics will pique your interest as it did for me. Before I get into it, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to AJ, the self-proclaimed podcast messiah, for inviting me onto his show, AJ Presents the Greater Good. I didn't expect to be featured on a show so quickly, to be really honest. It was a lot of fun, had a few laughs, and he was one of the first individuals to reach out to me when I started this podcast journey. So AJ, if you're listening, thank you. No one can stop black excellence. If you want to check out the episode I featured on and his podcast in general, it's available on Spotify, iTunes, and more. I'll leave the necessary information in the show notes for you guys. So let me be straight with you. There's no formal structure of what topic I'll talk about in each episode. I'm just going to talk about things that intrigued me or made me say what the fuck out loud. Let's be real, life is full of what the fuck moments. Not just in present times, but throughout history. Since COVID struck the entire world last year, it has brought up a lot of questions and concerns. If you follow the news, it can be a lot to handle. So understandably, with something that's new and dangerous, we have to adapt to not being able to live life like we once would pre-COVID. It's tough, but hopefully sooner than later, it will be stabilized and everything can resume to how it once was. Or maybe not. Don't worry, I won't be talking about COVID. I'll let the scientists and news stations repeat themselves about it. But since I mentioned it, have any of you thought, oh my god, things I did before COVID, I don't think I could ever do that again. Or have you questioned some hygiene standards that were the norm pre-COVID life? If you get grossed out easily, this is a warning. But if you have a strong stomach, then let's go and hear me spew out wildly dirty facts about the history of hygiene. So we're going to start way back, so buckle up. The word hygiene comes from Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health, who was the daughter of Isikiopoulos, the god of medicine. To all the Greeks out there, I am so sorry that I butchered that pronunciation. Definitely deserve to be called a Malacca for that. Since the start of the Industrial Revolution, circa 1750 to 1850, and the discovery of the germ theory of disease in the second half of the 19th century, hygiene and sanitation have been the forefront of the struggle against illness and disease. Yet, we still have people who don't practice proper hygiene. Bruh. So now it's time for the timeline. 4000 BC. Egyptian women applied Jelena Mesidate made of copper and lead ore, a naturally occurring solid material from which a metal or valuable mineral can be profitably extracted, and malachite to their faces for color and definition. 
If you're wondering what malachite is, let me explain. Malachite is a green copper carbonate hydroxide mineral with a chemical composition of Cu2CO3OH2. To my scientists and chemists and hella smart enthusiasts, I know you'll actually understand what that formula means, since I couldn't even tell you all the elements on the periodic table, even if my life depended on it. It was one of the first ores used to produce copper metal. It is of minor importance today as an ore of copper because it is usually found in small quantities and can be sold for higher prices for other types of use. Malachite has a green color that does not fade over time or when exposed to light. Those properties, along with its ability to be easily ground into a powder, made malachite a preferred pigment and coloring agent for thousands of years. It has been used as a gemstone and sculptural material for thousands of years and is still popular today. In present times, it is most often cut into cabochons or beads for jewelry use. Through science and research, we now know that malachite is not a good way to improve your skin or looks in general whether it is inhaled, ingested, or contacted by exposed skin, the effect could be injurious to your health. Malachite dust is quite toxic. 45 to 70% CuO, cupric oxide, and again, it should not be breathed, ingested, or left on skin surfaces. As the old saying goes, beauty is pain and pain is beauty. 3000 BC. The ancient Romans invented lead-lined water pipes and tanks. The rich paid private water companies for their drinking water and other water needs, although it wasn't much better than the water supply the peasants used. Most water systems were made from elm trunks and domestic pipes lined with lead. Water was stored in large lead tanks and often became stagnant. The effects of drinking water with lead are especially vulnerable to young children, infants, and fetuses because the physical and behavioral effects of it occur at lower exposure levels in children than in adults. The following issues that are caused by lead poisoning are the following. In children, even low levels of lead in the blood can result in behavior and learning problems, lower IQ and hyperactivity, slowed growth, hearing problems, and anemia. In rare cases, ingestion of lead can cause seizures, coma, and even death. In pregnant women, lead can accumulate in our bodies over time where it is stored in bones along with calcium. During pregnancy, lead is released from bones as maternal calcium and is used to help form the bones of the fetus. This is particularly true if a woman does not have enough dietary calcium. Lead can also cross the placental barrier exposing the fetus to lead. This can result in serious effects to the mother and her developing fetus including reduced growth of the fetus and premature birth.
Even though children have a higher risk of health problems due to lead poisoning, it is also harmful to adults. Adults exposed to lead can suffer from cardiovascular effects, increased blood pressure and incidence of hypertension, decreased kidney function, and reproductive problems in both men and women. Yet, here we are debating if Dasani or Fiji water is better. At least it's clean, right? 2800 BC Some of the earliest signs of soap or soap-like products were found in clay cylinders during the excavation of ancient Babylon. Inscriptions on the side of the cylinders say that fats were boiled with ashes, but did not refer to the purpose of said soap. I'm sure it was used like how we use soap today to bathe and cleanse, but if not, what the fuck did they use it for? So many questions. 1550 to 1200 BC. The ancient Israelites took a keen interest in hygiene. Moses gave the Israelites detailed laws governing personal cleanliness. He also related cleanliness to health and religious purification. Biblical accounts suggest that the Israelites knew that mixing ashes and oil produced a kind of hair gel. It looks like they wanted to keep their edges in check. Mm hmm. 1500 BC. Records show that ancient Egyptians bathed regularly. The Ebers Papyrus, a medical document from about 1500 BC, describes combining animal and vegetable oils with alkaline salts to form a soap like material used for treating skin diseases as well as for washing. Many other ancient civilizations also used early forms of soap. Soap got its name from an ancient Roman legend about Mount Sapo. Rain would wash down the mountain, mixing with animal fat and ashes, resulting in a clay mixture found to make cleansing easier. Okay, okay, now we're getting somewhere. They do say natural products are the best. 1200 to 200 BC. The ancient Greeks bathed for aesthetic reasons and apparently did not use soap. Instead, they cleaned their bodies with blocks of clay, sand, hummus, and ashes, then anointed themselves in oil and scraped off the oil and dirt with a metal instrument known as a strigil. They also used oil with ashes. Okay, so I love how bathing for them wasn't to feel clean. It was mainly so they looked good. First impressions count, you know. 1000 BC. Grecians whitened their complexion with chalk or face lead powder and fashioned with crude lipstick out of ochre clays laced with red iron. Here we go again with the lead. As for the lipstick, I understand wanting luscious red lips, but exposure to iron oxide that is present in red iron, the fumes can cause metal fume fever. This is a flu-like illness with symptoms of metallic taste, fever, and chills, aches, chest tightness, and cough. Yeah, no thank you. 
600 BC. Ancient Greeks started using public baths. In the Book of the Bath, Françoise de Bonneville wrote the history of public baths begins in Greece in the 6th century BC, where men and women washed in basins near places of exercise. The ancient Greeks also start using chamber pots, used from at least 600 BC by the ancient Grecians. They've been used up until the 18th century all over the world. Don't get me wrong, I love taking baths here and there, but that's strictly me time. Not sure how I would feel having a bath surrounded by other people. I think my anxiety levels would be too damn high. Also to note, by the 7th century, soap making was an established art in Italy, Spain, and France. These countries were early centers of soap manufacturing due to their readily available supply of locally sourced ingredients, such as oil from olive trees. Three hundred BC, wealthy ancient Romans began to use wiping techniques in their toilet habits. Common materials used were wool and rose water. About a hundred years later, the more common Romans used a sponge soaked in salt water. Yeah, so the fact that they used sponges irks the fuck out of me. Sponges are porous and absorbs basically everything. The amount of bacteria just chilling on there makes me want to scream. 19 BC. The ancient Romans began to use public baths. Agrippa, Emperor Augustus's right-hand man, built the first public baths called Thermae in the year 19 BC. They increased in number rapidly. At least 170 were operating in Rome by the year 33 BC, with more than 800 operating at the height of their popularity. 27 BC. Ancient Romans believed in the ability of urine to remove stains. Until the medieval period, people used lye made of ashes and urine to clean their clothes. Well, at least everybody stank, so no one can say shit about someone smelling bad. As we're now heading into the Anno Domani years, AD, with Jesus arriving in town, you would think that there may be some hope for what's to come. Think again, we still got a long way to go. 100 AD. The ancient Romans developed cesspits, usually in the cellar or garden. If you're not sure what a cesspit is, let me tell you. Also known as a cesspool, it is a pit or a pool for the disposal of liquid waste and sewage. So basically, it's just all of the nastiness you can think of floating around. In 1183 BC, a Roman emperor's hall floor collapsed, sending dinner guests into the cesspit where some of them unfortunately drowned. What a way to go. All jokes aside, can you imagine living back then? I sure as hell cannot. It seems like 
life was waking hell. Reading about how we used to function as a human race kind of terrifies me, but also makes me happy that I am born in this era. We all know that no one really likes morning breath or just bad breath in general. So let's take a gander of what some people were doing to maintain their pearly whites. Mm -hmm. 400 AD. In medieval Britain, the population had begun various habits to keep their teeth clean. This included rinsing your mouth out with water or a mixture of vinegar and mint to remove gunk. Bay leaves soaked in orange flower water were also used and the teeth would often be rubbed with a clean cloth too. Before we get into the filth of the Middle Ages, there were areas of the medieval world where personal cleanliness remained important. Daily bathing was a common custom in Japan during the Middle Ages in Europe, and in Iceland, pools warmed with water from hot springs were popular gathering places in the evenings. Ugh. I would love to go into a hot spring right now, or anywhere outside of Montreal, really. Damn COVID. While other countries were already lathered up in the art of cleanliness, the English began making soap during the 12th century. Took long enough. Commercial soap making began in the American colonies in 1600, but was for many years a household chore rather than a profession. It was not until the 17th century that cleanliness and bathing started to come back into fashion in much of Europe, particularly wealthier areas. But until we get there, get ready for a fucking dirty ride. If it wasn't hard enough being a woman already, just be glad you weren't gallivanting through the shit and vomit-ridden roads during the Middle Ages. If you got what I like to call your monthly gift, you had to be a bit creative. A bog moss, commonly found in England, was dubbed blood moss for its absorbent qualities. Of course, many say it got its name from the use on the battlefield, but plenty of historians have another theory. Medieval women didn't have the luxury of going to the drugstore to solve their monthly problem, so they used the moss to fashion their own pads. Ugh, what a time to be alive. 1110 AD In Britain, one pamphlet recommended that people can keep their teeth white by rubbing their teeth with powdered fish bones then rinsing their mouths out with a mixture of vinegar and sulfuric acid. Okay, the powdered fish bones is pretty gnarly and nasty, but sulfuric acid? Let me give you the rundown of what that is. Also known as battery acid, it is a mineral acid composed of elements of sulfur, oxygen, and hydrogen with molecular formula H2SO4. Its main uses include manufacturing fertilizers and other chemicals, petroleum refining, and is a battery component. In appearance, it is colorless, odorless, and viscous liquid that is miscible with water at all concentrations. 
When it is impure, its color ranges from yellow to dark brown. This is a corrosive substance, so it is destructive to the skin, eyes, teeth, and lungs. Severe exposure can result in death. Okay, so this pamphlet was basically telling people to slowly kill themselves just to ensure that they had good breath. How good was it? Probably not that great. But hey, A for effort, right? Have you ever heard of the idiom like pulling teeth? I'm sure this is where the inspiration came from. 1308 AD. In Britain, it was common for your barber to remove problem teeth. If basic treatments didn't fix the problem, the barber would be removing it without the help of Novocaine. A guide for barbers was established in 1308 teaching barbers surgery skills. <gasps> okay, this makes me think, is it possible that Jack the Ripper was a fucking barber? If villagers weren't already terrified of being killed by a figure lurking at night, there was something else I was going to catch up to them eventually. 1346 to 1353 AD. The Black Death pandemic swept across Europe, killing 40 to 50% of the population during that period. It likely originated from Central Asia and it was probably spread through trading routes. Soon after the trade routes went to shit in 14 AD, the Chinese invented toilet paper. Okay, now I fully understand the value and luxury of toilet paper. So it's no surprise that there were shortages of it at the beginning of COVID. I'm kinda joking, but not really. Let's take a little break from all the piss and shit but don't worry, that boat hasn't sailed just yet. But along with hygiene, not only do we want to be clean, but also look our absolute best. Maybe some of us use self-tanning products, or like myself, since I got that melanin flex, and I'm able to just go sit outside in the sun for a while to get the benefits of vitamin D. For the most part, we just want to brighten up our look without having to use makeup or a lot of it. Nowadays, some people will view those with super pale or fair skin complexion as potentially sickly or unhealthy. Obviously, not all cases of paleness are due to that, but paleness could be caused by reduced blood flow and oxygen or a decreased number of red blood cells. Not so hot, right? Well, it was fashionable during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. 1500 to 1600 AD. Ceruse was the foundation makeup choice for both men and women in the Elizabethan era as it gave them a smooth, pale look. However, ceruse is actually the archaic term for white lead. And as I mentioned earlier, lead equals bad. Though the correlation wouldn't be linked for some time, this was the go-to look. 
the white lead would seep into the body through the skin, leading to poisoning. As I recap this grimy part of history, I feel like my nose would be so desensitized from all the, the stench that maybe working for this guy wouldn't be as bad as I would imagine if this were in present times. 1566. King James VI of Scotland wore the same clothes for months on end, even sleeping in them on occasion. He also kept the same hat on 24 hours a day until it fell apart. He didn't take a bath as he thought it was bad for his health. Yeah. I am legitimately mind blown. I can't even get myself caught wearing the same outfit in public more than once on a bi-weekly basis. Which reminds me, maybe I should go through my closet and reevaluate all my clothing. Obviously, this is so I can make more room for some more toilet paper. <laughs> On the topic of toilet paper, have you ever wondered who invented the concept of flushing? Well, now you're gonna find out. 1586. Sir John Harrington invented a valve that when pulled would release water from a water closet. Albert Giblin holds the 1819 British patent for the silent valveless water waste preventer, a system that allowed a toilet to flush effectively. Wow, that was a tongue twister. Unfortunately, there were no sewers or running water at the time, so it wasn't able to be practically used. Hey, it's a step in the right direction. It wasn't a total waste. I can't wait to sink my teeth into some stats that utterly shocked me. The next point is concerning Britain and their stereotyped bad teeth. This stereotype seems to stem from a particularly American view of dental health, in which artificially straightened and whitened teeth, sometimes referred to as Hollywood teeth, are the healthiest. But this primarily affects only the outer appearance of teeth, some evidence has shown that artificial whitening actually has a negative effect on dental health. In reality, these are the top 10 countries for overall dental and oral health in the world. The stats are measured by the DMFT. The DMFT is the sum of the number of decayed, missing due to cavities, and filled teeth in permanent teeth. So we're starting at the bottom. Number 10 with a score of 1.2 is France. Nine with a score also at 1.2 is the US. Eight with a score of 1.1 is Mexico. Seven with a score of 1.0 is Canada. Six, with a score of 0 0.9, Switzerland. Five, with a score of 0 0.8, is Sweden. Four, with a score of 0 0.8, is the United Kingdom. 
three with a score of 0 0.7 is Finland, two with a score of 0 0.5 is Germany, and one with a score of 0 0.4 is Denmark. Congratulations to the Danes. Less than half a tooth per child is in need of critical care. This speaks to diet, commitment to oral health, a dedication to education, and probably some very demanding parents. Now knowing these stats, the Brits have come a long way. From washing their mouths and teeth with vinegar and sulfuric acid to being in the top five of best oral and dental health worldwide, they definitely picked up the slack from their past habits. 1600. New developments in teeth cleaning started to appear in Britain. Rubbing one's teeth with the ashes of rosemary was common, and powdered sage was used to rub on teeth as a whitening agent. Vinegar and wine were also mixed to form a mouthwash. 1600 to 1700. The same practices for cleaning were in use, but the barbers, aka dentists, had begun to learn more about dentistry. The first dentures, gold crowns, and porcelain teeth started arriving in the 1700s. 1790 brought about the dental foot engine, which rotated a drill for cleaning out cavities. The first dental chair was made in the late 1700s. If you're wondering what the fuck a dental foot engine is, let me help you visualize it. The father of modern dentistry, Frenchman Pierre Fauchard, described an improved drill in 1728. Its rotary movement powered by a cat gut, a material used for the strings of some musical instruments made of dried twisted intestines of sheep or horses, but not cats, twisted around a cylinder or by jeweler's bowstrings. A hand-crank dental drill was patented by John Lewis in 1838. George Washington's dentist, John Greenwood, invented the first known dental foot engine in 1790. Greenwood adapted his mother's foot pedal spinning wheel to rotate a drill. Greenwood's dentist son continued the use of the drill, but the idea went no further. If you're already afraid of the dentist, I apologize for potentially making your fear even worse, but hey, these are just facts, facts of the past. But if you thought that was pretty gnarly, check this out. 1750, a letter from Lord Chesterfield to his son urging the use of a sponge and warm water to scrub teeth each morning. The recommendation of using one's own urine in France was widely flouted by Pierre Fauchard, the French dentist mentioned earlier. Gunpowder and alum were also recommended. Oh my god, they really need to stop with the sponge. I'll never look at the sponge the same way ever again. Also, gunpowder? Like, what are they doing? 
y'all are nasty. Oh, you nasty. Okay, so I'm gonna be really honest. I'm not that much of a makeup person, but I have my moments. Since COVID, I could probably count on one or maybe two hands how many times I've put on some makeup. Sometimes I think I would benefit from my brows looking on point, but I would definitely skip over this method of application. 1789. People were already fashion conscious during the 18th century. When their eyebrows did not look fashionable, they often masked them with tiny pieces of skin from a mouse. Poems as early as 1718 insinuated their use. Bitch what? If any of you took a history class and covered the medieval era, you would potentially have an idea of what caused the Black Death, also known as the bubonic plague or simply the plague, to wipe out half of Europe. Simple and short answer. Airborne transmission of bacillus, a titan of bacteria, from person to person and getting flea and rodent bites. As for how bad this plague was, let me give you a little idea. It caused blood and pus to seep out of strange swellings, which were followed by a host of other unpleasant symptoms. Fever, chills, vomiting, diarrhea, terrible aches and pains, and then in short order, death. The bubonic plague attacks the lymphatic system, causing the swelling of lymph nodes. If untreated, the infection can spread to the lungs or blood. Bruh. I get that it happened hundreds of years ago, but in retrospect, I was laughing with real tears for about five minutes over the fact that people were using something that wiped out half of all of Europe's population just so their eyebrows would be on fleek. I've never appreciated my thick eyebrows more than ever. <laughs> As we delve into the cesspit of the 19th century, we must understand the way people were living and working was changing radically. The changes definitely affected the risk of infectious diseases and other conditions. In the industry, with manufacturing processes becoming more mechanical, there were various work-related diseases that were on the rise and becoming more common. This included lung disease and dermatitis, aka skin irritation. Also, with the expansion of cities, typhus and cholera became a little bit too familiar. And of course, traveling. With more people discovering and checking out different parts of the world, they took diseases as an extra souvenir, including yellow fever, a disease caused by flavivirus that is transmitted by the bite of an infected mosquito. It gets its name from the yellowing of the skin and eyes, jaundice, that occurs when the virus attacks the liver. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, scientific advances at the time started to make new treatments possible, including the germ theory. 
scientists began to test and prove the principles of hygiene and antisepsis in treating wounds and preventing infection. New inventions included the electrocardiograph, which records the electrical activity of the heart over time. Communication-wise, as postal services and other communications improved, medical knowledge was able to spread rapidly. Also, with political changes, democracy led to people demanding health as a human right. The 19th and 20th centuries saw breakthroughs occurring in infection control. At the end of the 19th century, 30% of the deaths were due to infection. By the end of the 20th century, this figure had fallen to less than 4%. I'm thankful that some of these new findings were rising to the surface. Much like a nasty pimple. 1834. The 1834 London Medical and Surgical Journal describes sharp stomach pains in patients with no evidence of disease. This led them to believe painter's colic was a nervous affection of the intestines occurring when lead is absorbed in the body. Took a couple hundred years, but better late than never, right? 1846. Public baths had been popular since the 13th century. Due to the scarcity of firewood, bathing became an expensive practice. Whole families and friends had to share a bath, or many of them would remain dirty. Ugh. A year later, a Hungarian doctor, Ignaz Semmelwis, found childbed fever occurred in women who were assisted by medical students. Also known as postpartum infections, Childbed fever are bacterial infections of the female reproductive tract following childbirth or miscarriage. Signs and symptoms usually include a fever greater than 38 degrees Celsius, 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit for you Americans, chills, lower abdominal pain, and possibly bad smelling vaginal discharge. It usually occurs after the first 24 hours and within the first 10 days following birth. Through some observation, Semmelwiss found students who assisted in childbirth did so after performing autopsies. After insinuating a strict hand-washing policy, deaths dropped by 20-fold within three months. Who would have thought that dealing with dead bodies and pregnant women at the same time would be the right call? Can I just say how wild that the protocol of washing hands between procedures was only implemented 174 years ago? Then again, I could kind of understand why this wasn't common practice. The reason for this is because well into the 19th century, Soap was heavily taxed as a luxury item in several countries. Once the tax was removed, soap became available to most people and cleanliness standards across societies improved. Honestly, I can't even walk into a Hudson's Bay without getting a slight headache 
from all the different smells of perfume, cologne, all that nice stuff. So I can't even imagine walking in the streets back then when literally everything smelled like shit and piss. So let's see what possible solutions are to come to alleviate the stench. Oh, gross. 1837 to 1901. A nosegay was typically a small bouquet of flowers or sachet of herbs. It was attached to the wrist on a lapel or simply held in the hand. It would also be held under one's nose for people walking through crowds. Nosegays gained popularity during Queen Victoria's reign. Fashionable and practical, my type of accessory. 1854. In mid-18th century England, outbreaks of cholera led to an epidemic. A doctor, John Snow, observed that cholera seemed to spread via sewage-contaminated water. This was mostly noticed around a water pump in Broad Street, London. Snow removed the pump handle and the spread was instantly contained. Four years later, in 1858, hot weather struck the capital, drying up the River Thames and leaving pure sewage and other waste piled up and exposed. This was the start of the Great Stink, forcing Parliament to close for the day and eventually initiating a reform of the sewerage system and cesspits. This next event must have been inspired by the Great Stink. Four years later, in 1861, we welcome the modern flushing toilet. Thomas Crapper, I wish I was making the name up, didn't invent the flush toilet, but it is understood to have had major contributions towards its development by implanting a modern septic system that pumped soiled waters out of the city. However, this particular subject is still heavily debated. Either way, Whoever is truly responsible for this innovation, let's not piss on their parade. One person that may ring a bell for you is Louis Pasteur, an infamous French chemist and microbiologist. He is the founder, the GOAT, the OG of medical microbiology. Thanks to him and Claude Bernard, the pasteurization of liquid mostly milk and juice, so you have a beverage free of pathogens, organisms that cause disease, and extended shelf life, so it lasts longer. Pasteur said that many diseases, including tuberculosis, TB, cholera, anthrax, and smallpox, happen when germs enter the body from the environment. He believed that vaccines could prevent such diseases and went on to develop a vaccine for rabies. But it's not just him that made an impact on modern medicine. There are others like Florence Nightingale, a British nurse pioneering nursing work while caring for wounded soldiers during the Crimean War. René Léniac, a French doctor who invented the stethoscope pioneering its use in the diagnosis of chest infections. James Blundell, 
a British obstetrician performed the first successful blood transfusion on a patient who had hemorrhaged. Crawford Long, an American pharmacist and surgeon, was the first doctor to give a patient inhaled ether anesthesia for a surgical procedure. Elizabeth Blackwell, from Britain, she became the first fully qualified female doctor in the United States and the first female to be on the UK's medical register, and many, many more individuals. As we're nearing the 20th century in this timeline, let's just reflect on how far we've come as humans and our cleanliness. Bathing and looking your best has always been the forefront of making good impressions. Gotta make those first ones count. We were super drawn to lead and its uses. Again, it is a health hazard. Please do not consume. Brits, they actually have way better teeth than I even thought. I apologize for stereotyping. I am guilty as charged. Everyone smelt like shit, rich or poor. Y'all are nasty. Washing your hands is really, you know, it's a habit that should be second nature at this point. And I, lastly, I will never look at sponges the same way ever again. If you thought that this was as wild as it was going to get, you are definitely mistaken. As the world strives for more knowledge through science and with the help of ever-changing technology, the sky's the limit. But we're not quite there yet. There's some aspects of hygiene that may surprise you as much as it did for me. During World War I, commercial soap as we know it today came into existence. The injuries of war brought an increased need for cleaning agents. However, at the same time, the ingredients needed to make soap were scarce. German scientists created a new form of soap made with various synthetic compounds and as a result, detergents were born. By the 1950s, detergent sales had surpassed soap sales in the United States. Most commercial soaps today are actually detergents, which are made with petroleum byproducts. Since these soaps are detergents, by law, they cannot be called soap. Chances are that when you see a soap called body bar, it's not soap at all. Just a tip for the next time you go to the pharmacy or the store. Hair care, dental hygiene, and making sure your butt and private parts are all nice and fresh was being placed higher on the priority list. Products like shampoo, deodorant, toothbrushes, soft toilet paper as we know it today all branched out from the early 20th century. As indoor plumbing became more common in the 20th century, bathing at home in hot water became increasingly normal. At first, once a week for full body baths was standard. But what about if you feel, you know, a bit icky and you don't necessarily have the time nor patience to take a long bath because you took one two or three days ago? 
you may want to use a wipe or cloth with some soap, but maybe you wouldn't want to use this. In 1920, Lysol was sold as a genital disinfectant and birth control method. What? Lysol ads proclaimed a host of benefits for every gynecological need and was the leading form of birth control from 1930 to 1960. Lysol is actually a caustic poison causing burns and itches after the first drop. Most women were applying it to their skin for 30 years. But for what it's worth, it didn't work either. A 1933 study concluded that close to half of the 507 women surveyed that used this birth control method got pregnant. Women who tried it were constantly being treated after suffering inflammation and burning sensations. There were even several reports of death. Hell no. Just nope. I'm speechless. Thank God that's not a thing anymore because that's just fucking horrifying. I think I'm just going to use my Lysol wipes for my countertops. Thank you very much. Instead of using wipes that could literally kill you, maybe bathing more is the better option? So luckily, bathing eventually increased in frequency after electrical heated water became more common. By then, cheap commercially made soap was readily available. School doctors recommended a daily cold and a weekly warm bath, highlighting the still limited availability of hot water. I don't know about you, but I really love my hot showers but I, I understand that that was not a luxury during that time. By the 1920s and 1930s, people, particularly women, of course, were expected to eliminate body odor through regular washing and use of deodorant. Women were encouraged to remove underarm hair. P.U. To combat societal norms, in the 1970s, alternative lifestylers, aka hippies and feminists, rejected deodorant and razors in favor of a natural look and smell, although most people continued to see body odor as offensive. In the early 2000s, a vast array of products became available to counteract the body's smells. Personally, I don't like having a lot of hair on my body, but for those who want to let it grow, you do you, boo-boo. But letting your hair grow doesn't mean that we want to smell the funk. You need to wash yourself. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. By the 1960s, most houses had a hot water service, making it easier to wash in hot water regularly. Doctors have realized that the overuse of soap can cause skin problems like eczema, while excessive cleaning damaged skin, making it vulnerable to germs. If you like taking a shower before bed, there may be a reason for that. Between 1975 and 1980, sleep hygiene was developed 
as a recommended behavioral and environmental practice intended to promote better quality sleep. This recommendation is thought of as a method to help people with mild to moderate insomnia. However, in 2014, the evidence for effectiveness of the individual recommendation is limited and inconclusive. Okay, so even though there's no solid or direct evidence, I gotta say I do sleep like a baby after a nice hot shower before bed, so maybe they were onto something. I think they should do some more research on that because I'm very curious. Now heading into the 21st century, our current one, we've clearly made some headway with the importance of self-care and the importance of hygiene. But would it surprise you that in 2000, there were 1,229 million people worldwide were practicing open defecation. By 2015, there was a decrease of approximately 27% of those practicing open defecation. But again, that's still 892 million people. But why? Toilets were invented so we could avoid this. I can't even go into a public bathroom stall without feeling, you know, a bit self-conscious, especially if it's number two. And then there's fucking people who just shit right there in the open for whoever to see with no fucks given. Now that's wild. Now that's a level of energy and lack of care that I could never achieve to truly not give a shit. But all jokes aside, thinking about it, a lot of third world countries don't have the same luxuries as we do, such as toilets, running water, toilet paper, etc. So it it does make sense why they may resort to taking their number two outdoors. With COVID being present, I know that health officials and doctors telling us to wash our hands seems pretty redundant. Like, duh, obviously we should wash our hands. But in 2015, it was noted that a study of hand washing in 54 countries finds that on average, only 38.7% of households practice hand washing with soap. <gasps> okay, so can we all agree that common sense is not common? You can't see me, but I'm just shaking my head right now. I personally wouldn't consider myself a clean freak or a germaphobe, but after researching for this episode, I will have to reevaluate everything in my life. Even for those of you, including myself, that wash your hands, did you know that a study by the University of Connecticut School of Medicine in 2018 shows that dryer sucking in bacteria and fecal particles from flushing toilets can spread onto users' recently washed hands? No one is safe. Watch yourself and wash yourself. After listening to these facts, you can now understand how the history of filth, 
is not a linear tale of science combating slime and grime over the centuries. The more successful our economies become, the more waste we create. Fecal contamination of water is widespread in the developing world and latent everywhere after disasters. Ultimately, putrefaction awaits everyone. Whoa, sorry. That took a real dark turn. But hey, I'm just giving you the facts, you know? I'm just telling you the truth. Realizing how important personal hygiene really is, it should be everyone's priority. A simple action like washing your hands should be so easy to do, but yet not enough people do it. With COVID and being stuck in a stagnant routine of going to work and then going straight to my apartment for over a year can wear anyone down. I get it. You get it. We all get it. We're all going through this together in one way or another. So if people could stop making health official statements and precautions deemed as political when they are based on years of previous research and medical developments, that would be great. Okay, thank you. Because they are literally the experts for a reason. Who am I? I'm just a Montrealer that misses hanging out with their friends in bars and parks without a care in the world, seeing my family members on the regular, and just so many other activities that I took for granted. I'm thankful for those that I have around me that have kept me pretty sane during these times. I'm crossing my fingers that hopefully sooner than later, we can all take COVID as a learning experience and realize how important it is that we stick together through thick and thin. And with that, I thank you for listening to this episode. I know that was a lot of information, kind of going back and forth, but I hope you enjoyed this timeline as much as I enjoyed retelling it to you. If you could please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all of them, I would really appreciate it. If you want to leave topic suggestions for future episodes, you can email me at wswkpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to stay up to date on future episodes, you can always follow me on Instagram and Twitter at wswkpodcast. I'll leave all this information in the show notes for you guys. Stay tuned for what's coming up next. It's going to be a wild fucking ride. Bye-bye.